Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this session, so stick around and we'll jump right on in. Before we get started this week, I'm proud to announce that Permaculture Magazine of North America has become the first sponsor of this podcast. Incidentally, they've also just celebrated their one-year anniversary this summer. And as the offshoot of the beloved Permaculture Magazine International out of the UK, there is now a regional edition to help strengthen permaculture knowledge throughout North America. This is one of my favorite go-to resources for the latest information on innovation and news in the permaculture world. If you visit permaculturemag.org to sign up for your hard copy subscription today, you'll get the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture Magazine International as a free bonus. And just for listeners of The Abundant Edge, you can now receive 50% off your digital copy subscription right now by finding the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So go now to permaculturemag.org and dive deep into the local and global solutions that go beyond sustainability. Have you ever felt completely bogged down by the weight of current events and news? Things like climate change, government corruption, war, and violence seem to be the norm and hard to get away from. I know these things affect me deeply, and that's why I'm always looking for positive news and media about solutions and inspiring change. That's why I'm proud to say that I've partnered with one of my favorite sources for just those things, New Society Publishers are book publishers that focus on putting out great books and positive solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they can go on to change the world for the better. And what's more, their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They actually care deeply, not only about what they publish, but also about how they do business. They believe in the authors they take on and the works they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society publishers have the books you need to help build a better world. In fact, the author that I'm interviewing today, Robert Pavlis, and his book Building Natural Ponds are published by them. And if you stay tuned at the end of this interview, I'll tell you how you can be eligible to win your own copy of the Permaculture Market Garden. So stick around for that after the interview. All right, so in this episode, I'm going to try something just a little bit different because I'm actually not in Guatemala for for this interview. I'm visiting my family in Minnesota right now, and I'm here with my younger brother, Arthur, who has agreed to do the introduction for me this time. So here's Arthur. Hey, everyone. We're really excited about today's guest, Robert Pavlis. Robert is a master gardener who has designed and cultivated his own world-class private botanical garden on his property in Ontario, Canada. He is also the author of both Gardening Myths and Building Natural Ponds. Today's episode will be focusing on natural ponds and Robert's successes and learning experience in mimicking nature to bring all the benefits of a pond into his garden environment. In his interview, Robert talks in detail about the increased biodiversity both in the water and along the shores that a pond attracts. We go into pond lining options, simple diagnostics for water quality, design considerations, and much more. Now, some of you permies and regenerative landscaping folks might find that this interview is a bit heavy on the residential and gardening perspective. You'd be right. So I would challenge you to leave comments on the Abundant Edge Facebook page or in the comment section under this episode on the website if you'd like to challenge any of the information in this interview or offer a different perspective on pond construction. Honestly, though, 
I think just about anyone will find a gold mine of information in here. Robert does a fantastic job of breaking down the design and installation into really easy to follow steps that we know will empower you to build a pond of your own. Now, if that's the case, then stay tuned at the end of this interview to see how you can win your very own copy of the book, Building Natural Ponds. Now I'll turn things over to Robert Pavlis. Hey, Robert. How are you today? It's such a pleasure to have you to join me. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, before we jump into the questions, could you tell our listeners about yourself and how you became passionate about botanical gardening and natural ponds? Well... Uh, I've been gardening for a long time, so um, I, start, I started gardening when I was about 21. Um, I've always been interested in trying to figure out how to streamline gardening and use ideas from nature to try to make gardening simpler. I've also always been interested in trying to find out what the real facts are about certain aspects of gardening, why we do things and, and why things work and why things don't work. Uh, my background is both in chemistry and biochemistry. Uh, and then I moved on into business and marketing and spent most of my life uh, actually developing a software company. So gardening and ponds is really just a, a hobby of mine. But my business allowed me to take early retirement and spend more time on, uh, on my gardens. Fantastic. Now, to get us started, could you explain for us why someone would want a pond in their yard or ecosystem and some of the benefits that natural ponds specifically bring? Uh, well, there, there's a lot of uh, reasons. Some people want a pond to attract wildlife. So, you you know, people today are, are planting things for things like butterflies, for instance. Uh, but if you have a pond, then you start attracting all kinds of other things, uh, different types of frogs and toads, uh, dragonflies. I have quite a few different kinds of dragonflies now on the property since I put in a pond. So there's that uh, uh, interest in having nature come to your garden, uh, which is both a benefit uh, uh, and a negative aspect, right? Some of that nature you really don't want to come to your pond. A lot of people get a pond to have fish. You know, fish is still a really popular hobby, and the pond lets you add that to your garden. From a gardener's perspective, there's also aesthetic reasons for having it. Uh, I think it adds um, you know, an, a, a very unique element to the garden and uh, is, a, is a good place a, a focal point in the garden and then you can put plants all around it uh, so there are really lots of reasons uh, people just like sitting there and watching it um, watching their fish or watching the animals uh, if it's a pond with some moving water then you also have the noise that uh, comes from having the the waterfall and so that's also attractive in a garden Fantastic. Now, could you talk a little bit more about how a natural pond fits into a garden landscape? Um, you talked about the biodiversity that it tends to bring. Maybe use yours as an example, since I know you have an incredible botanical garden in southern Ontario where you live. So I, I uh, bought a property about 12 years ago now. Uh, it's uh, about six acres. Uh, most of it is wooded, but some of it is open. 
And when I moved here, I decided to have a very large garden. So I now have Guelph's largest private garden. And my design around the house is a bit more formal, but as it moves away from the house, my design becomes much more natural looking. And my large pond is actually a fair distance from the house. And uh, I wanted it to look as natural as possible. And ideally, I want people, when they see it, to think that it's always been there, that it hasn't been man-made. So from a design perspective, uh, I think that's really important. It's, it's, not, it's not a necessity for a pond. You can have a very formal pond. But a lot of people like to make it look more natural. Um, and so it's, then it becomes a combination of, of water and plants and rocks uh, put together in such a way that it, it really looks as if man did not make this pond. And if you can get to that point, then I think you sort of accomplish something. And so that's always been my goal with, with both parts of my garden and, and my ponds. Have you found that it creates sort of a microclimate around the area? that affects the way that your plants grow? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I, I mean, it, uh, most ponds are lined. So if you're going to line the pond, then the soil around the pond is actually quite dry. It's no wetter than anywhere else in your garden. So it doesn't become a wet area. Uh, I imagine there's a bit more humidity around the pond and maybe the temperature is slightly lower, but I don't think that really changes the way the, the plants grow. Okay. What it does do, though, is it, it has a different wildlife there. And sure. The insects you see, um, the reptiles you see and so on are, are quite different and much more populous near a pond than away from it. Sure. I can walk around my garden all day and, and not see any leopard frogs. And if I go to the pond, I can easily count 20 of them. So the life that's living there is, is quite different, the animal life. Uh, the plant life uh, is really only going to be different if you let it happen naturally. Right? If you plant things, then whatever you plant is what you have in, in, in the pond. But in fact, in, in my uh, large pond, I now have two different species of bulrushes, and neither one has been planted. They both started growing on their own the second year I had the pond. So that seed somehow blew in from some other pond in the neighborhood, I guess, and they started growing. So, you know, some of the plants will just grow naturally like that. Yeah, it really sounds like it just sort of attracts life to it. So how do natural ponds keep their water clean, and how can you ensure that your pond water stays healthy with natural methods? So uh, well, let me take you back a bit and how this whole thing started. Sure. Uh, my, my, as I said, my pond, it, I, I have a pond and then I have a, a large waterfall. And the large waterfall was made in the more traditional way of using pumps, uh, although I don't use any filters. I do have a pump to move the water up top the hill and have it flow back down again. So then I decided, well, I want this pond and it's farther away from the house and it's in a wooded area. And I thought, okay, well, one of the problems is I don't have electricity there. So to have a pond, I, I need to run electricity up there. And I, I really didn't want to do that. And I started thinking about it and thought, you know, well, in nature, there's, there's no pumps and there's no filters. 
these just these pawns just exist all on their own. So why wouldn't that work if I make the pond? So I did a lot of research and everything I came across said that that won't work. Everybody was convinced that if you have a liner in your pond, that makes it unnatural and then you need to clean it and filter it and, and pump water and use chemicals and all the other things. But nobody could explain why that was the case. So I finally decided, you know what, I'm just going to give it a try and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, well, then I guess I have to run some hydro up there and get a pump going. So I built this uh, with a liner. Um, I designed it right from the start so I could grow a lot of plants in the pond. And that's a critical point because most ponds are designed with few plants and a pump. And I decided to go with lots of plants and no pump. And so I have these planting shells around the pond, which take up uh, a good part of the surface area of the water. And the theory is, and, and this pond's now been uh, in place for over 10 years, so it's really no longer a theory. But the water stays clean if there is a lower amount of algae and bacteria in the water. And particularly the algae is the problem. And algae grows when there's lots of sun, lots of nutrients. Well, if there's lots of other plants, they use up the nutrients, so there isn't any left for the algae. So the reason the water stays clean is because the plants are your natural filtration system. They're taking all the nutrients and using it to grow. And once the nutrient level gets low enough, algae can't grow. So algae needs higher nutrients than, than most other plants. And so you can have plants growing just fine, um, but the algae stops growing. And once the algae stops growing, then you start having clean water. And it really is that simple. Now, it also helps to keep nutrients out of your pond. So there's certain things you, you do, like you, you can't fill the pond with a huge number of fish because fish you know, poop in the water and add nutrients. So you have to watch how many fish you have and balance that against how many plants you have. Sure. But the bottom line is if you, if you, once you get that balance, um, the water stays clean. Um, the plants, the plants in fact are limited in the amount of growth they can have because they can only grow if there's enough nutrients. And if they use up too much nutrients, they just slow down a little bit. Right. But, you got to have enough plants to make sure you get to that point. Fantastic. Now, let's go back and talk about that a little bit, because I know that a lot of the people that I've worked with who are interested in natural ponds also want to have fish, either for aesthetic reasons or even for harvesting. Uh, could you tell me a little about how fish function in these ponds and how can you maintain them in a healthy way without chemicals or pumps? Again, it, it comes back to the balance. Having... Um, it, it's a certain number of fish balanced with the plants that you have. So I can put, uh, I, I run goldfish in my pond and I just keep the numbers down and the, the, the nutrients that the fish add are used up by the plants. Um, if I put too many fish in, I'll start having a problem. Okay, so the, the key is to balance how many fish you have and how many plants you have so that you don't overdo the fish. 
The other thing you try to do is, is limit the nutrients that the fish have. So, for instance, when I put fish in my pond, I don't feed them. I want those those fish to eat what's in the pond. If I start throwing a lot of food in there, the food is more nutrients. The fish will eat them, process it, and I get more nutrients in the pond. So I never feed fish in the pond. Mm. Uh, I just let them go natural. Now, if you have a larger pond and you're trying to raise fish, and, and that's your primary goal, you probably would end up feeding those fish. But those ponds typically are much larger and deeper. And so you, you still have to maintain a balance of not too many fish. If you, just, if you cram the fish in there, then you'll end up with, with a, a pond that that's, has too many nutrients, and then you'll have algae problems, and then you have all kinds of other problems. So is that the main indicator that your system is sort of falling out of balance, is just the appearance of algae? Or are there other things that you can look out for? Algae is the biggest problem, um, and and all ponds will have some algae. So there's no such thing as as a f- pond free algae or a, a pond without algae. the The key is that it's there and it doesn't grow very much. Um, as soon as it starts growing, it's particularly the filamentous type algae, which forms this kind of scum on the water. As soon as you see that, you know that um, you have too much sun and too many nutrients. Uh, both of them play a factor. So the nutrients we've talked about, and the, the other one is sun, so it's, it's very good to have thing, plants on top of the water. So water lilies are great because they, they kind of shade the pond. But uh, as long as you don't see the algae growing, you're fine. All right. So in, in my pond, for instance, I, I ne- I've never tested the water. I've, I have no idea what the water is. Um, I have some idea of the kind of water we have in this area. It's very hard water. Um, I use the, the, my well to fill the pond. And then after that, whatever, whatever the pond does to it, I don't know. I don't test for nitrates. I don't test pH. I don't test for any of those things. I just, just leave it alone. Um, every once in a while, I do top it up because, unfortunately, we don't get enough rain here to keep it topped up. And so once or twice a summer, I'll, I'll bring the level up to, to a higher level. But other than that, I, I don't do anything else to the pond. I never change the water. Um, I just top it up once in a while. Sure. Now, what are some of the primary design considerations when it comes to ponds? And what are some of the things that you can do to make them more natural looking? Well, one of the things I suggest is to actually go out and look at real ponds. Um, so go into the woods, find some ponds that you know are, are what I call native ponds, and that there hasn't been a lot of development around, there hasn't been a lot of activity by people. So they look pretty much the way they did 50, 100 years ago. And just ask yourself, why does this look natural? So you, you, if you go through this process, there, there are certain things that uh, help you out. Uh, one is that natural ponds tend to be a little messy. So if you see someone's pond in the backyard and, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a certain shape and it's all clean and the, uh, there's no logs laying around and so on, it, it starts looking unnatural. 
as soon as you start putting a few logs in there, you leave a few weeds here and there, and it's it's cleaned up less, it starts looking more natural. Mm. Uh, selection of rocks can be very important too. Uh, so, um, again, if you go and look at these ponds, you, you won't find a pond in the woods where every rock is the same size around the pond. They're all different sizes, you know, large ones, small ones, round ones, square ones, different colors, whatever happens to be in that area. So when you're building your pond, you want to do the same thing. You want to have a large mixture of types of rocks. Uh, another thing I notice is that when I look at uh, a natural pond, there's almost always rocks in the water, not just around the edge. There's, there's In the shallow areas, you'll see rocks sticking out, particularly as the summer goes along and the water levels drop, uh, these rocks become more and more prominent. And so if you can design the pond so you actually have some rocks in the water, that again adds to the natural look of the, the place. Um, one of the, the secrets to both allowing you to have enough plants and to design it to look natural is to make sure you can't see the liner. Okay. And most designs, um, I don't do that. So if you, if you go and get yourself a, a book on making ponds, uh, if you follow the instructions, you will see the liner when you're finished. And uh, that was something that really bothered me because I really don't want to see the liner. So what I do is I use planting shelves all the way around the outside of the pond. And those planting shelves are somewhere around 6 to 10 inches deep. And those get filled with rocks. And uh, they cover the liner. And once the water goes up high enough over the shelves, uh, I don't see the liner. So you can build a pond and not see the liner. And those planting shelves are hiding the liner, but they're also giving you a perfect place to put all your plants. So these shelves now get, get filled with plants and they're keeping your water clean. Fantastic. So that's, that's a, um, you know, I, it's, it's, I see some really nice ponds in pictures and so on. Um, and if, if you see the liner, it just kind of spoils the whole, the whole impact. Yeah, I agree. It kind of takes you out of that ecosystem that they're trying to create there. Yeah. Now, actually, that's, that's great because that's what I want to talk about next because I know there's a number of different ways to, to seal ponds from leaking. Could you talk a bit about how a few of these options work, which ones are available, and which personally would you recommend? Um, well, I think there are really only two ways you can seal the pond. Um, uh, so what I would recommend for most people, particularly if you're building a smaller pond in a backyard, is just get a liner. Uh, now, there are two kinds of liners that you can get. There's, there's the flexible rubber liner, and then there's what, what they call a hard shell. So if you're building a very small pond, the, the hard shell works quite well. It's very easy to install. You sort of dig a hole, stick it in, um, and you're done. And you know exactly what the pond's going to look like because this shell is already pre-made and is made out of plastic. So you know exactly what it's going to look like. The problem with the pre-made ones is that they tend to be on the smaller side, the smaller size. So if you want a big pond, 
they're difficult to get. They don't have planting shelves. You're sort of stuck with the design that happens to be in the store when you go to buy them. You can't change the design very easily. If you use a rubber liner, on the other hand, uh, you can make it any shape you want. And you can make it as large as you want. You can actually join these pieces of rubber together quite easily and, and make really huge ponds with the rubber liner. Uh, so I think most people should probably use the rubber liner unless they're doing a relatively small pond. And the rubber is, uh, you use the use a 40 mil rubber uh, that's designed for ponds and you're pretty much guaranteed not to have any leaks for at least a dozen years. Um, don't cheap out and use some other kind of plastics. It's just not worth it. The effort to replace that or fix a hole is just too big and you, you it just isn't worth the money. Um, the other alternative is to have a pond that naturally seals itself. And that requires a certain type of soil, usually a higher clay level. The problem with those kind of ponds is that they're never 100% sealed. So there, there's always some seepage out of the pond. So they work well if you have some water coming in constantly. So if you're in an area that gets lots of rain, then that's not a problem. Or if you build this pond, say, at the bottom of a hill, where you get runoff on the hill whenever it rains and it runs into your pond, or you have a, a spring on the property and you can direct the spring water to the pond. But clay-lined ponds always, always leak a little bit. And you really need to have this constant addition of water. Uh, now, to make a clay pond, you can do it a couple different ways. Some people are lucky enough that their soil just, just is, has a high clay level, and all you really have to do is dig the hole and fill it with water, and it will sit there. Uh, other people uh, will bring clay in and uh, have someone actually layer it around the pond and make a you know, a six to inches to a foot thick clay layer everywhere and let that seal the pond. Uh, you can buy some commercial products that are a clay type product that actually expand when they get wet and they, they seal it. Um, but those all leak a little bit and it's really hard to predict how much leakage you're going to get with those. Um, so if you're building, particularly building a big pond, probably worthwhile talking to someone who, who's familiar with the soil in your area and knows exactly how fast it's going to leak out the water. Um, so those, those are the two options. Um, you can use a clay, clay liner. Uh, one way you can test that is just Dig some pilot holes that are as deep as you want your pond to be. Fill them with water a couple times and just see what happens. Mm. Uh, if that water runs away fairly quickly, then you probably can't use that option. Um, now, you may still be able to dig the hole and buy commercial clay or, or bring some clay in and, and do it that way. Um, but that, I think, becomes less of a do-it-yourself project and more of a you know, hire an expert who knows how to make a clay line pond so it's done right. Sure. So now what are some of the concerns that people often have about installing ponds and perhaps the maintenance that usually comes 
with unnatural ponds. How are natural ones different? Well, probably the the biggest fear I think most people have is 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 getting a hole in the pond and having a leak out. Um, and and that actually happens very rarely. Um, most so-called leaks are in waterfalls where the water is actually running over top of the liner. Um, you very seldom actually get holes in the liner. Uh, if you do, they can be patched. The tricky part is finding the hole. But once you've found the hole, you can just put a patch on, very similar to patching a bicycle tire. It's a special glue that you have, and you buy a patch, and you stick it on, let it dry, and and uh, the, the liner is good as new. Um, the algae is, is a big problem. People are concerned about that. Um, as far as maintenance go, um, as I said, my pond, there really isn't any maintenance. I haven't done a thing to my pond all year. Uh, I don't even scoop the leaves out in the bottom in the fall. Um, I just leave them there. Although that's that's not a bad idea to kind of clean out any fallen leaves and so on that, that have accumulated in the fall, get them out of there. That will pull nutrients out uh, and make it easier next year because you'll start with less nutrients. When you start going to equipment, then you have all kinds of sort of maintenance jobs that you have to do. Uh, if you have a pump, you almost certainly have a pre-filter on that, which needs to be cleaned on a regular basis. Uh, that pump may go into a regular uh, biological filter. Uh, those biological filters have various kinds of material in there, sponges and, and different types of little bits of plastic and so on. They need to be cleaned once in a while. Um, and people who grow have a lot of fish. So now we have a group of people who their main reason for having a pond really is to have koi. And uh, koi are beautiful fish, but they they get big. Uh, they are very dirty fish. They produce a lot of nutrients, and they're a bit more fussy on the water quality. So those people typically end up uh, treating the water regularly, measuring nitrate levels to make sure they don't get too high. Um, but they now have a pond where they've crammed in a lot of fish into a small pond and they like that because you you can see the fish really well and they enjoy the fish and the fish is the reason for being there so this this works for them but as soon as you do that you're way off balance for the pond which means now you have more mechanical systems and more chemical systems to try and keep everything alive naturally and that, yes and that's the trade-off and and there's there's of course that's on a continuum, right? You, you have some people with only a few koi in a big pond, but most people with koi typically end up having quite a few after all. And, and they grow, which is the other problem you have to be aware of. You, know, you have a pond, it's a certain size, and you figure, okay, I can have, you know, 12 inch of fish. And, and you can't buy 12 one inch fish because right, by, right. now they're all 12 inches, right? So they grow and, and you either have to get rid of those fish now because you have too many or you have to do something else to, to uh, keep the water clean. Sure. So could you tell me a little as well about some of the most common mistakes that people make or, or the things that they overlook when they're putting in a pond? Um, 
Well, the, from my perspective, when I look at ponds, and in fact, a good way to see ponds before you build your own is to go on some garden tours. Uh, most cities now have some sort of garden tours, and there's always a couple with ponds in them. And uh, um, we actually have in, in Toronto, we have a, a, a pond association, and they have a garden tour every year, and every garden on the tour is, has ponds. The, the tour is really more about the ponds and the gardens. And that lets you go and see a lot of different types of ponds and different designs and so on. And it gives you a good idea of what you like and don't like. Um, probably number one uh, mistake people make is not making it big enough. Um, I mean, it's not really a mistake, but what happens is, is you very seldom find people who wish they had made the pond smaller. It's kind of like having a shed, right? The shed's never big enough. Yeah, yeah. And once you have that pond, you wish, well, if it was a little bigger, I could grow different kinds of plants. I could have more fish. Uh, a larger pond is easier to take care of, too, because the balance isn't quite as critical. Uh, it doesn't get out of balance as, as easily. Uh, so most people wish they had a bigger pond. So make it as big as you can possibly make it. Um I mean, other than that, it, you have to get the equipment right. So um, one of the big questions I had when I built my waterfall is, you know, what size of pump do I need? Um, and that's a really hard question to answer. And I spent a lot of time researching it. There's lots of formulas and calculations and so on. But in the end, it really comes down to what you perceive as the right amount of water coming over a waterfall. You know, are you the sure. kind of person who likes a Niagara Falls kind of effect? Yeah, yeah. Or do you want more of a trickle effect? Right. What's the volume you're looking at? Yeah. And and it's it's really hard to figure that out. And uh, in the end, I, I pretty much guessed uh, at buying a pump, a pump and worked out about what I wanted. Um, but that's hard. And probably the only way to really figure that out is to go and find someone who has a waterfall of the size that you want with the flow rate that you want and find out what kind of pump they use. Mm -hmm. and, and here where the, the key thing is the gallons per hour. Mm -hmm. um, but the height that you have to pump is also important. Right? Sure. Uh, because you can have a, you can have a, a pump with really high flow rate, but it, it can't move water very high. And so if you build a waterfall that's six feet high, it might have very little flow, right? The, the flow rate and the, the height it has to push the water are related to each other. Um, that's one of the reasons it's, it's hard to calculate. Uh, the other mistake I've seen that's related to that is, is the, the hose going from the pump to the top of the waterfall should be as big as possible. So most people think that the pump has to overcome gravity to lift water. And that just makes common sense, right? I'm going to have a waterfall that's six feet high. i got to lift that water up six feet, and it's the gravity that's making that pump work. Well, it turns out that's, that's only partially true. A much bigger effect is the friction that you get inside the tubes. So I was at a nursery once, and they had a little display and this waterfall was only a foot high 
And the guy was explaining to me how, yeah, he had to go to a bigger pump because he wasn't getting the flow rate he wanted. But the hose was about an inch in diameter. Right? And my waterfall uses a, a four-inch PVC pipe. So I get very little friction going up that pipe. And as a result, I, I don't lose much flow rate as I go up to, to the top of the waterfall. So you have to have a large outlet tube on your pump. And ideally, the inlet's large, too, but mostly on the outlet because that's the, usually the longer piece of tubing. Um, so that's another reason to stay away from the mechanical things because all these every time you add one of these things, it might not be quite what you want, right? Uh, and there's lots of other things to buy. There's UV um, sterilizers. You know, do you need one of those? Do you, how often do you have to replace the lamps? How many lamps? Sure, yeah, it just gets more complex from there. And it gets more and more and more complicated and more expensive and more maintenance. And these things break down and have to be replaced and, and so on. And then on the other side, you have, well, dig a hole, put in this liner, put some stones and plants around it, and... And don't do anything. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. You know, the, the thing easy you, choice. Well, the, the thing you miss is the little waterfall, right? So it really comes down to if that waterfall is important, you do need a pump. So when I built my waterfall, I decided to keep it simple. And I do have a pump. I do have a leaf trap on the inlet side, which you pretty much need to keep large pieces out of the pump but I don't have a filter. And so I figured, well, you know, I have a, a, my waterfall raises up about 20 feet. It's actually five little ponds all joined together with smaller waterfalls. And all that rock and all that material in there, and I put lots of plants in there. Those are all my biofilters. And so I never put in a biofilter and I don't use UV sterilizers and I don't use, uh, uh, any chemicals. I, I can have goldfish in there. Um, I don't right now because I I actually took the goldfish out so the frogs breed better. Um, so I have lots of frogs and no goldfish. Um, but I even though I have a pump, I've kept it simple. I Basically, I have a pump and that's it. And I let, all the other stuff I left out. And um, I'm letting the the rocks become the surface where all the bacteria live, and those are cleaning my water. And so those are my biofilter. But rather than having a separate mechanical container, um, I have it in the pond. And I just let the natural stones and plant roots be my biofilter. Fantastic. Yeah, it's remarkable what Mother Nature can take care of when you just give her the tools to do her job, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And... and that's been my approach to, to all aspects. Certainly. Now, we've covered a lot of things here. We did waterfalls. We talked about the aesthetics, possibility of fish. How could you design for something larger like a natural swimming pool? And what would be the main differences in design considerations and managing the health of the water? So this is more popular in Europe than it is in North America, but it seems to be catching on. Um, so the idea is let's make a natural pond without pumps, without filters, but let's have an area for swimmers. So 
we can still have some fish, although most people don't bother with the fish now. But they want a, a, a definite area for, for swimmers. And it's really no different than a natural pond. Uh, you still have planting shelves. So you want one area for your plants, and those are going to clean your water, and another area for swimmers. And, and most people will make the, the pond bigger so that they have enough area for swimming around in. Well, there's really no difference. Now, the one thing you might want to do is to put in a pump now to circulate water. So um, you might have a little waterfall, um, but you don't need to do that. But there is value in moving that water around uh, for a couple of reasons. Is, is now we have a large central area where the swimmers are and, and the, the plants are on the side. And, and it's nice to move that water around a little more because the water will be cleaner that way. Uh, it also tends to keep it a little warmer that way because you don't have these cold pockets in the bottom of your swimming area. Uh, so sometimes people will actually add pumps, but they don't really add filtration systems. They take the water from where the swimmers are, pump it to where the plants are, and let the water run through the plants back towards where the swimmers are. And as it's going through the gravel and the plants' roots, it gets cleaned. Right, so it's it's you're moving water around a little more for the the swimmer. Sure, but other than that, there's it and the size. There really isn't a lot of difference. Um, you know, natural ponds we try to make them kind of odd shaped usually. Swimming area is better if it's kind of rectangular. The planting area can be irregular, but the swimming area is a lot of people will make it rectangular. Yeah, I've seen that. They, you want them usually deeper. So for swimmers, you know, you want four or five, six feet deep, whereas ponds are generally more like three feet, four feet deep, right? So, so there's some small differences, but as far as actually putting them together and they way, the way they work, they're really the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a big believer that natural ponds are beautiful and healthy additions for almost anyone, but especially in residential settings. But I know that it's rarely ever as simple as just getting started digging. Could you talk about the permitting process and how someone might get started investigating the regulations around ponds in their area? Oh, okay. Um, well, it, it's usually fairly simple. Phone, you know, the organization that's in charge of, of where you are. So in Canada, it's usually the city. Um, or if you're out in the country, it's, it's probably a, a county office somewhere. And just phone them and see what the regulations are. Uh, the regulations in, in, in Guelph are kind of unusual, I think. At least I thought they were odd. Uh, so I phoned the city and said, I want to put in this pond. Uh, do I need to fence it? Because in, in, in our city, you certainly need a fence around a swimming area. And the answer was, well, what is the main purpose of this? Is it for swimming or is it a pond? And I said, it's a pond. And he says, well, in that case, there are no regulations. If it's for swimming, you've got to fence it. Um, so, but each district is going to be different. So you have to find out someone who knows what the regulations are for your area. It's possible that it needs to be fenced in. If I was in a, uh, a typical suburb type area where the houses are close together and, and, you know, there's kids running around the neighborhood and so on, it's, it's probably a really good idea to fence it in. 
Um, I wouldn't want neighbor kids running through my backyard and into the pond. So even if the regulations don't require fencing, it's, it's probably a good idea to have your back. Sure, you just don't want that liability. Yeah, you don't want to take a chance. I mean, I can tell you that I, my grandchildren, when they were little, they loved the pond, right? But we'd stand right beside them because we knew they couldn't get out and they couldn't swim. So kids are drawn to water and um, you really have to be careful. Um, in a typical backyard pond, the only regulation that I really know of is, is fencing. And there probably is a regulation about how close it, it could be to the neighbor's fence, like to the property line, right? So most cities have some ordinance that says, you know, anything you build has to be three feet away from the property line or something like that. So there's probably something uh, to that effect. I would imagine, too, in any sort of urban or even suburban area, you want to definitely double check where the utility or water lines might be underground, too, before you start digging. Yeah, so particularly hydro um, and most jurisdictions now will check that for you for free. So right. you always check before you start digging. Um, and uh, other than that, it's, it's, it's work. Um, now, again, you, if you're doing the digging, you kind of figure out how you're going to dig it. Um, are you going to do this by hand or are you going to bring in some equipment? And can you bring in equipment? Um, you know, the, the most... A lot of houses these days, there isn't the room to bring in an excavator into the backyard to dig a hole. So sure. they kind of figure out how that how that's going to work. But Fantastic. Well, digging is just work. So <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. It's definitely been my experience. Um, so wonderful. Now, before I let you go, could you tell our listeners about some of the other resources that you have available and where they can get in touch with you and find out more? All right, so I uh, I do have a, a blog, um, well, a web, let's call it a website, uh, under my name, so robertpavlis.com, and you can reach most of my things from there. So my books are on there, and my websites are listed there uh, as a launching point to these other areas. I have a website called gardenmyths.com, and it's really a blog, so I post there usually once a week. And I look at all kinds of different uh, myths to do with gardening. Uh, some of them to do with ponds, uh, but mostly gardening. Uh, so what do we know about gardening that, that's not true? Like how do you get rid of slugs? And, uh, you know, when should you prune your trees? And is it better to plant your trees in the spring or fall? And So I look at all those sorts of, of things. So that's gardenmyths.com. And I also have a second blog called gardenfundamentals.com, which is uh, more general gardening information. So I, I did a post there, for instance, how to tell which type of hydrangeas you have. People always have problems with, with hydrangeas. They're trying to figure out why they don't bloom and should they prune them and when should they prune them and so on. And the problem is that they don't actually know which type they have. And so this one post helped people figure out the type. And once you know the type, then you know how to take care of it. So that's gardenfundamentals.com. 
And I've, I've written two books. Uh, one is the sort of subject we've been talking about here, Building Natural Ponds. Uh, you, you'll find that on all my websites. There'll be links there, or you can get it from Amazon. Sure, and I'll be sure to link to all these websites and resources you're talking about on uh, the show notes for the podcast as well. Okay, great. And then the second book I've written is called Garden Myths. And uh, so I published that last year, and it's, it's got about 120 different kind of gardening myths that I discuss. Fantastic. Well, hey, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a real pleasure talking to you. I'll have to have you on again to talk more about gardening myths and fundamentals next time. Well, that'd be great. Nice talking to you. Cheers. Well, take care. Bye. So if you were as inspired as I was listening to Robert Pavlis talk about the wealth of information in his book, then here's your chance to win your very own copy of Building Natural Ponds. In order to be entered, all you need to do is leave a review of the Abundant Edge podcast on iTunes and send a screenshot of your review to info at AbundantEdge.com. From there, I'll pick my favorite and send you a brand shiny new hard copy of Building Natural Ponds. Thanks so much to last week's winner, Tristan, for a beautifully written and generous review. For those of you awesome people who've already left a review on iTunes, you can still win by sharing this podcast episode on Facebook. Just tag the Abundant Edge in your post and send your screenshot by email for your chance to win. As soon as you're selected, the lovely people at New Society Publishers will send you your own hard copy if you live in the U.S. or Canada. Or if you live outside those two countries, they'll send you a digital copy straight to your email. So submit your entry to win today to info at AbundantEdge.com. So before we wrap up this show for the week, I've got some exciting news about the upcoming months. And I'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of Atitlan Organics, Shad Goodsey. Hey, buddy, what's new? Oh, man, so much is happening. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. I really love your podcast, and I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway, probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know, we've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atitlan. In particular, though, the Intro to Permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners, architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like honestly, you can't take this course and still see the world the same way afterward. Man. Yeah, it's life changing. Sure. But like I said, what I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're going to be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our intro to permaculture courses. Literally, this two-week offering is like Possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? Man, well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well. I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, outdoor kitchens, and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. 
And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with natural materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive. And probably my favorite part is that we have this world international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. we got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. you got Fungi Academy. And honestly, loads more alternative, blow-your-mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening. Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition. So this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered. That's a great idea. Because I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks. But this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. And that way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So hey, to all of you listening out there, we really want passionate and driven people like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the upcoming events and workshop schedule? For sure. Well, for start, they can either go to atilanorganics.com and click on the workshops tab, or they can check out abundantedge.com and click on the education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive, regenerative, and truly life-changing projects. So this is Oliver Gaucher and Chad Goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building. Can't wait to see you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer, from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America, simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session.